Well, today we begin a new series, and it is called Invitation to Play. Now, at this point, you might be thinking to yourself, Invitation to Play? What the heck does that mean? What are we being invited to play? Um, freeze tag. Freeze tag. <laughs> I guess I'm it. Uh, <laughs> hide and seek. Question you might be asking is, how is play a part of our spiritual lives? Is play a spiritual practice even, like prayer or fasting? Is it a significant part of following Jesus? Well, as a way to introduce this series, as well as maybe even begin answering some of those questions, allow me to share part of my personal journey with you for a moment. Back in the winter of 2017, just a couple years ago, my wife Kat and I were on a hike at River Edge Nature Center. It was the first week in January and I recall it was blistering cold, like really cold. There I am meandering away somewhere, just aimlessly on the trail. Um, I really like, in fact, I love taking hikes with my wife, but I really don't like being cold. <laughs> it's just not that fun for me. So I was struggling to enjoy myself a bit. And then somewhere along the line, something changed. Something shifted in me. I'm not even sure what uh, prompted me to do this, but I suddenly took off running. In fact, I left the trail and I started bounding through the woods, weaving in and out of trees. And Kat, uh, before I knew it, she'd taken off and she started chasing me <laughs> uh, like it was some kind of a game. And of course, Kat caught up to me because she's always had greater stamina than I. And uh, it was only a matter of time. And I think because we were... Um, learning, we were uh, doing jiu-jitsu at the time. It had, when she caught up to me, it had formed into a grappling match in the snow. So we were wrestling around in the snow. Uh, eventually, I freed myself from her grip, and I took off running again out of view, and I found a little bridge that crossed a frozen creek, and so I slid under the bridge. The chase had become a game of hide-and-seek. Of course, the whole point is to be found, and after I was found, we both got down on our bellies and explored the creek like a bunch of kids on a snow day. It was awesome. Well, needless to say, I was not cold anymore. <laughs> but the warmth, I believe, was from more than just physical exertion. My heart was strangely warm as well. There was this tangible joy and love welling up within me. We laughed and played as if we were dating again. It was really cool. And there was something about that experience, about that day, that I believe marked a turning point for me. Like I had tapped into something that ought to be central to life. And I wanted to share this feeling, this kind of experience of joy and playfulness with others. Well, as I began to reflect uh, later that year on that experience of what God was doing, me in, doing in me at the time, I started to realize how central joy is to the Christian experience. I was reminded of the time that Jesus told his disciples that love was a pathway to joy when he said in John 15 that I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and so that your joy may be made complete or may be full. And so that began kind of this practice of paying attention to those things in my own life that brought me joy, knowing that my experiences of joy were also experiences of God, joy being a fruit or a result of the Spirit's activity in my life. 
And one of the things that I took note of was that these experiences of joy were often characterized by play and playfulness. Whether it was playing in nature or playing with friends, family, colleagues, even playing around with ideas. There was a certain playfulness that lay at the heart of these moments of joy and laughter. And speaking of laughter, something remarkable happened the following year. I started to notice my laugh begin to change. My laugh actually begin to evolve into a new kind of quality. One of the things that Kat noticed about me when we were first married is, you know, she would say, my laugh seemed kind of stunted and shallow. <laughs> hey, <laughs> she's making fun of me. <laughs> now, this stood in stark contrast to my experience of her family and her and her sisters and mom in particular, whose laugh was boisterous and loud and came from this, like, deep, sustained place. In fact, I used to think their laugh was kind of annoying. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I'd have to like steal away to a room with a book and just kind of like, ah, it's too much for me. I can't handle it. But during this period where I was discovering joy and play, my laugh, I started to notice just one day, I'm like, you know, my laugh seems to be coming from a deeper place in me. It's louder. It's more sustained, it's actually starting to sound like my wife. <sighs> Instead of it originating like in my throat, it started to come from a place deeper from within like my belly. And the first time I shared this with Kat, she laughed at me. <laughs> Go figure. I think it's because I said I was experimenting with a new laugh. <laughs> but the funny thing is, is I was dead serious. This wasn't a joke but rather a genuine experience I was having. And to this day, my laugh has a different quality to it. Finally, last fall at our annual pastor's retreat in Green Lake, I was scheduled to receive some prophetic prayer, which is basically sitting down with two volunteers, usually who you don't know, and you spend about 15 minutes with them as they're listening for words, things that they feel like God wants to share with you. And so I signed up for it, and I have to admit that my experience doing this has been kind of a mixed bag, so I didn't have much expectation going into it. But when one of the volunteers began sharing what they felt like God wanted me, uh, wanted to say to me, I was actually quite surprised. And while I don't recall exactly the way it was phrased, she said something like this. She said, God is really pleased with your joy, laughter, and playfulness and the many ways that this impacts others. While some may perceive it as immature or insignificant, it is not. Be encouraged. I was like, no way. Thought not only did that experience help confirm that the shift I was experiencing was actually like originating in the spirit, but that it was something that God was doing in me for the sake of others, that this was part of who I am, who God's called me to be, and it's actually part of my ministry, who God has called me to be for the sake of others. And as I was beginning to discover, I started to notice that play is actually a kind of virtue. In fact, actually, if you go into Greek uh, thought back in the day, they actually did they had a different word for play, obviously, in the Greek, but it was actually was seen as a, a specific virtue that people could grow in. 
but it's a virtue that can actually help transform your entire life, other areas of your life. And this, to me, I started to notice it stood really in contrast to the way a lot of Christians live out their day-to-day life. All too often, I think the Christian life is characterized by a sober seriousness. You know, there's work to be done, we tell ourselves, or, or this world is, is so, you know, uh, evil, and, and we've got to, you know, brace ourselves for it and everything. And I think especially given America's Puritan roots, Play is either seen as a distraction from the real work of ministry and service, something that's reserved simply for children, or if we do engage in some form of play, what adults like to call recreation because it sounds more mature, it's simply a way to recharge our batteries in order to be more efficient machines, to work better. And so we, we actually work at our leisure. <laughs> like, how can I have a, 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 the most efficient kind of leisure time so I can be a more productive worker? But play in and of itself isn't always seen to carry that much value, isn't really seen as contributing that much to our spiritual lives in particular. And so our hope for this series is that we can begin to explore some of the ways in which play is, in fact, an important part of our spiritual lives, how I believe it genuinely expresses the kind of relationship that God desires with us and how it is a foretaste of our future in God's kingdom. Amen? And this morning I want to start us off by looking at what play might be able to teach us about faith. So let's pray. Holy Spirit, we recognize your presence here with us. We acknowledge that you are here not only uh, uh, with us, but in us, and that your desire is to form us, uh, shape us into the image of your son, Jesus, uh, that we can become our best selves. We can become fully human and alive as we become more like Jesus. And so I pray that, that you'd give us the grace to yield to that work, to surrender to that work in us. We ask your blessing on the scripture as it is both read and heard. And we commit this morning to you in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to read from Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 13. Mark writes this. People were bringing little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them. But the disciples rebuked them. I find that interesting. They didn't rebuke Jesus. They rebuked the little children. <laughs> And probably the people bringing the little children to them, more likely. But when Jesus saw this, he was indignant. He got mad. He said to them, let the little children come to me. Do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it, or we might say experience it. And then Jesus took the children in his arms, placed his hands on them, and blessed them. Well, John Wesley, there's a statue of him right here, uh, was an 18th century pastor, theologian, and evangelist uh, who led a revival movement in England that eventually evolved into the well-known Protestant denomination, the Methodists. Now, Wesley is, I think, a great example of the typical attitude toward play that's often found in the, the tradition of, of Christianity, the history of Christianity. 
He was known for extolling the virtues of work as being a, a critical part of our spiritual lives and contributing to the common good. But play, on the other hand, was seen as a liability, a danger even. And I think this attitude might have been carefully culted cultivated in him from the time he was a little child. His schooling was done at home by his mother, Susanna, and school hours were strictly controlled with absolutely no time given for play whatsoever. Uh, only special times were, were allowed for him to play, and, and only with certain family members was he allowed to play. He was not allowed to play at all with other village children. Then there was a tragedy that happened one year, and their house burned down. So John had to live with some other families in the village, and because he was living with other families, he had interaction with the other village kids and learned how to play some, some games from them. He came home, and Susanna discovered this, and so she put an end to his play by requiring him to read and memorize Scripture. And as one biographer put it, as a result of this, play ceased to be part of John's childhood. So it might not come as a surprise that when Wesley founded Kingswood School, playing was not allowed on the basis that it was believed a child who played would result in an immature and irresponsible adult. Wesley is quoted as saying this about his school. We prohibit play in the strongest terms. The students shall rise at 5 o'clock in the morning, summer and winter. The students shall be indulged with nothing which the world calls play, and this rule shall be observed with strictest nicety. There's a phrase for you, strictest nicety. And then he says, for those who play when they're young will play when they're old. Dun, dun, dun. Oh, no. <laughs> now, we might scoff at such strictness. We joke about it. But I think we all probably experience a level of resistance to the subversive wisdom of Jesus, which insists on things like the first shall be last, or the greatest among you will actually be the least among you. And things like, in order to save your life, you have to first lose it. All of those things run completely counter to what we learn about the way the world is supposed to work. And what our culture teaches us, this is the way things are supposed to go. You know, we're, we're taught to be first in line. We're taught to be the greatest and the best. We're taught that in order to have the most life, we've got to grasp at life and do as much as possible. And so Jesus is always flipping the script on us. He's always turning things upside down. And in today's text, we find Jesus making this audacious claim that adults must receive the kingdom in the same way that a little child does, that there's something about the way a child experiences faith and life with God that is held as being exemplary. In other words, rather than us insisting that children become like and learn from us adults, because we've got it all figured out, Jesus says, well, actually, you ought to become more like and learn from children. Wow. And that got me thinking, and I started thinking about this, and I thought, maybe... 
the loss of play and, 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 and even more specifically, a certain kind of playfulness, like an approach towards life, a certain playfulness, maybe the loss of that as we mature into adulthood is actually a diminishment of a critical part of what it means to be human, made in the image of God. That as we lose the ability to play and be playful, we're actually diminishing a part of what it means to be fully alive, to be fully human, made in the image of God. In fact, G.K. Chesterton, the brilliant English writer and lay theologian, who wrote on very serious subject matters, uh, him and like C.S. Lewis and the, and the whole lot, he wrote this, he said, it is not only possible to say a great deal in praise of play, he said it's really possible to say the highest things in praise of it. In fact, he says, it might reasonably be maintained that the true object of all human life is play. Yes. Thank you, Fiona. I think that the Jesus way is sometimes so counterintuitive to what we've been taught that we resist it at many points. And even worse, we explain it away in the scriptures. As a result, then we end up missing on the very reality that Jesus' teachings point to. So before taking a little bit closer look at our text, allow me a moment to pray that any resistance we currently have would be released and that we would have the grace to receive the kingdom like a child. So Holy Spirit, we pray that as we enter into this series on play, that we would see it as an invitation into more of your life. And I pray that any resistance from any kind of conditioning we've had as we've grown up about what life is supposed to look like, what faith is supposed to look like, I pray that we will be able to experience uh, open hearts and open minds. Like little children, may we be receptive to what your spirit has for us in this series. We pray in your name. Amen. Let me read a portion of that passage once again. Jesus said, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom as a little child will never enter it or never experience it. Now normally when one speaks of what it takes to enter the kingdom of God, the typical Christian response is, well, of course, by faith. And we bring Paul into our defense, Ephesians 2.8, we might quote, it is by grace you've been saved through faith. Or the writer of Hebrews who once observed that without faith it's impossible to please God. Faith, we say, is essential for anyone who wishes to experience the kingdom of God. So what do children teach us about faith? If Jesus is to be trusted, and I believe he is, then we must take him seriously when he holds up children as examples of the kind of faith required of us. Because I don't see anywhere in Scripture where there are two ways of entering the kingdom, one for adults and one for children. There is just one way, and Jesus seems to insist that children 
are actually a better model of how this happens than adults are. So let me point out two aspects of faith that I believe we can learn from children. I think there are more, but here's two. First, we can learn the kind of humility that comes from the vulnerability and dependency that is integral to a life of a small child. See, little children are completely vulnerable in that they're totally reliant on others for life. Mothers, fathers, other family members, society in general, they are totally dependent for everything. And they receive the kingdom the same way that they receive life itself as a gift that they had not even sought. They simply receive it as a given. I think about my own kids when they were little. They never once considered whether or not they were worthy of God's love. They never once considered whether or not they were part of God's family. They didn't question whether or not they had the right doctrine or they were saying prayers in the correct way. It was an assumed given for them. Their lives began in God's presence. They, their lives began being held by God's love. See, the faith of children is so unconscious and so natural, so much a part of their lives, that unlike adults, they're not encouraged to have faith because they can't possibly be without it. See, we often talk about faith as, it's, as if it's something we possess and can control. Do you have faith or not? And we like to make pronouncements of who does and does not have faith, usually according to some kind of arbitrary parameters that we've created for ourselves. Our particular denomination, our particular group, if you check off this, this, and this, then we say you have faith. But the faithfulness that little kids exhibit is not a quality that some kids have and others don't. It's simply inherent in who they are. And it's not that they're totally innocent either. I mean, like adults, kids do stupid things too, right? <laughs> Thank you. But for the most part, little children come with totally empty hands without any of the rationalizations, justifications, explanations, or excuses found in adults. And as such, I think kids are... Beautiful, living illustrations of what it truly means to be saved by grace alone. For instance, normally when someone tells a little kid that God loves them, guess what? They believe it. Adults, on the other hand, you tell them that God loves them, they'll follow up a pronouncement like that with, yeah, but, and then rattle off a list of reasons why God would not love them. Right? We approach a little kid and we say, hey, hey, Billy, will you pray for Susie? Nine times out of ten, they're like, okay, why not? But you ask an adult to do that and they'll come up with all sorts of reasons why they're not experienced enough to pray for another person. And even if they do do it, they probably are doubting whether it's going to have any difference. We humans are really good at turning faith into achievement, but the whole point of the gospel is that faith is a gift, or we might say a given, from start to finish. 
emphasis on finish. In other words, we might realize that faith is a gift in the beginning, but then slowly it starts to turn into something that we have to maintain through achievements. But our existence is justified and made beautiful before we are able to do or fail to do anything. Our existence is justified and made beautiful before we are able to do or fail to do anything. Just take a look at one of your kids. Take a look at the little children. Their life is significant and beautiful before they say or fail to do anything. Jesus said that the kingdom of God belongs to little children. We like to turn that into just a cute little illustration. But it wouldn't even be an illustration if it wasn't actually true. That the kingdom does belong to children. That they're already a part of the kingdom. From the very first breath, they're experiencing God's life and grace. And this given, this gift doesn't just suddenly go away as they get older. Oh, now they're a teenager. Now, now, they're no longer, now they no longer belong to the kingdom. Now they got to do all sorts of stuff in order to get back in. What I think happens is, is our absolute trust in this gift starts to fade as we grow older. We begin to achieve and experience life as a system of accomplishment and hard work, and then it becomes natural for us to project that back into our spiritual lives. And we start thinking of faith in terms of the way we think about everything else, school and work, where everything is performance-based acceptance. And that's why we resist the simplicity of the gospel, the simplicity of grace, because it seems too good to be true. And I think this came to me as I was writing this talk. I really think this is lay at the heart of that exchange between Jesus and the leader of the, the religious leader Nicodemus who comes to Jesus in the middle of the night in John chapter 3 and Jesus tells him to be born again. We've turned that into this thing of like, well, the Spirit comes and spiritually renews and, and, and makes you a new person, which I think happens, but might it be that Jesus is simply saying, be like a kid again, Nicodemus. Accept faith as a gift, as a given. Stop trying so hard. Learn from the life of a little child what it means to have faith, totally vulnerable and dependent on grace for everything. Be born again. Start over. Because <laughs> the simple truth is this, and I've said this in other sermons before, I believe that you already have everything you're looking for. You belong to the kingdom of God. The question is whether you, you choose to trust it or not. Believe it or not. That's the first thing we can learn from little kids. The second thing that we learn about faith from little children is I think something that just naturally flows if the first one is trusted, and that is the absolute positive and enthusiastic embrace of life. And I think this is really important because vulnerability and dependency on others is not the only characteristic of kids. In fact, that's not the way they perceive their lives. Little kids don't go running around like, I'm totally vulnerable and dependent on everybody for everything. If your little kid's doing that, there might be a problem. Little kids don't do that. They just love life. They don't, they don't, they don't, 
they're not living in this world of scarcity that like I'm totally vulnerable and dependent on everybody for existence. I don't think a little kid thinks that way. Now, vulnerability and dependence might be their objective state, the way things actually are, but it's not usually their subjective experience. Whatever they do, little kids tend to tend to live and experience life fully in the present, without reservations, without apologies. They cannot help but be totally committed to life. Whether it's laughing or crying, playing or sleeping, eating or going to the bathroom, the experience of life lived in this very moment is all-consuming for them. And in contrast to this, adults tend to examine life, to reflect on it. They com- we compare our lives with others. We judge our own life. We judge other people's lives. Now, don't get me long, wrong. This kind of analytical thinking is helpful. It has many benefits to society, to our own lives. Plato famously observed that the unexamined life is not worth living. But at the same time, all of this ruminating tends to rip us out of the present and diminish the experience of life itself. And Jesus said, I came to give you life and life abundant. I mean, how many of us have laid awake in bed and spent so much time thinking, worrying, strategizing, regretting, and so on, that we go into our day having expended most of our emotional and mental energy. And we have no more bandwidth simply to enjoy life, to stop and and take in the simple pleasures like eating and drinking or take interest in the cool-looking bug walking across the sidewalk. But little children, on the other hand, they're naturally drawn into the wonder of the present moment. They lose themselves in everything they do. And this is especially evident when they play. Play just might be one of the best ways of expressing a life lived completely in the grace of God. Play at its very basic has no thought of producing or achieving anything to justify one's worth. Play at its most basic doesn't require any special knowledge or skill or even morality. It's a moment of time where we experience and taste real freedom, the freedom to dream, to imagine whole new possibilities, whole new worlds. The freedom simply to take pleasure and delight in the play itself. And by playing in this way, we can experience other aspects of life with a certain amount of freedom and lightness. We become more open and trusting. We experience the world as less rigid and threatening. We can give give ourselves to things more fully and faithfully because we are free to be completely present to whomever we're with and whatever we are doing. We can take risks without worrying about failing We can experiment without worrying about looking foolish. We can love and be loved without worrying about whether we are deserving of it. When Kat and I were running through the blistering cold, chasing and being chased, playing like a couple of kids, I wasn't regretting the past, nor was I worrying about the future. I wasn't questioning whether or not she loved or accepted me. I wasn't analyzing whether or not what we were doing was a good use of our time. I didn't care about being productive or justifying my actions or inactions. I simply allowed the moment to unfold, and guess what? It was perfect. 
It was perfect. And I haven't forgot it. Who knew that a moment of play could change someone's life? Bless you. It can. It has helped me grow in my experience of joy, freedom, grace, love. In other words, play has helped me grow in how I experience faith. If you don't remember anything else this morning, remember this. Play is too good to be left to children. Play is too good to be left to children.